For Christians, what's the relationship between all of the behavioral rules that we can find in this book? What's the relationship between those behavioral rules and our righteousness before God? That's a big question. It's a common question. We're going to talk about the answer to that question, but it's, it's kind of a long answer. So turn your, turn your brains on this morning. Plug in. Uh, Paul has talked a lot about that question, and he's given multiple answers already about the relationship between the law and the believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, where Paul started, we started about this time last year in Romans, and in the first section of the body of the book, beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul started to outline our problem. And our problem has a little bit to do with the law, but our biggest problem before God is not that we can't keep the law. Our biggest problem before God is not the sins that we commit, though they are a problem. But from a bigger picture, our real problem, um, or all of our many sins are actually a symptom of our real problem, the way Paul described our problem early in the book of Romans. The first verse of the body of this letter is this verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God's wrath is pointed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of a certain kind of people. People who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. In the first section of this letter to the book of Romans, I summarize our real problem as outlined by Paul this way. All of us are people who suppress the truth. We buy the lie and we make the exchange. Paul started right here. God's uh, wrath is pointed against people who suppress the truth. He then explained to us the truth. The truth is there's a God out there. The truth is there's a God out there that created all of this. All of this, this, this universe that is so incredibly complex and it operates according to laws of physics and it, it operates in a very orderly fashion. It just could not have come from chaos by accident. It's impossible. And we all have enough evidence to know that's the truth. And if that's the truth, then this is also the truth. If there's a God out there that created me, then I'm accountable to him. And the best way I could spend my life is figuring out who that God is and what he expects. That is my best life now. That's the truth. But we don't want that to be the truth. We tend to buy the lie. The lie that says, living this life for that God seems like a waste of time. We buy the lie that says, my life would actually be better 
Instead of living for him, if I live for me. And that's a lie. So we suppress the truth, we buy the lie, and then we make this terrible exchange where we exchange that truth of God for this lie that life would be better. If I just live for what makes a big deal out of me or what makes me impressive or makes me feel good or seems like fun or makes me money or whatever. And then all of our many sins result from that. And this is every person. Paul said, even though, even though God has laid out the rules for us, you want to be righteous? Here you go. Here's the rules. There's none of us that are righteous, not even one, Paul said. Because we've suppressed the truth, bought the lie, and made the exchange. That leaves us in need of rescue from our unrighteousness. And I'm so thankful that the book of Romans didn't stop there, because that's the bad news. Beginning in Romans chapter 3, partway through, Paul laid out the good news. The gospel. And the good news is, even though we are not righteous enough for God to look at us and say, you are righteous based on how you have lived. None of us are righteous. There's another way for God to declare us to be righteous. The judge of all the universe can drop his gavel and say, this one right here is righteous. How do we get declared righteous? Where Paul... Paul tells us in that second section of the body that we maintain, in other words, this is, this is Christianity 101, bedrock of the Christian faith. We maintain that any person, a man, anyone is justified. That means be declared righteous. A man is declared righteous by God by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That means there is a way for us to be declared righteous by God. Righteous, which means like perfect, like good enough in God's eyes. By faith alone. Paul explained the faith that's required is in Jesus Christ and his cross. The greatest trade-off that's ever happened. Here's what happened at the cross. My sin went on to him. Then the punishment, my sin and your sin deserved. The wrath of God was poured out on him when it should have been poured out on me and on you. And that's only half of the trade-off. And when I believe in what Jesus was doing there on the cross and what God was doing there on the cross, God takes his perfect righteousness and puts it on my account. That's a great trade. That's how sinful people like me and like you can be declared righteous by God. And notice, Paul said that happens apart from works of the law. That means my standing before God and your standing before God, our righteousness before God is not dependent on how well we do at following the rules. How well, how, the religious things we do, the behavioral things we do, the moral things we do, that's not what determines our righteousness before God. Now, 
What's the most normal, natural, logical objection to what I just explained? That you can be declared to be perfect in the eyes of Almighty God simply by believing in what Jesus did at the cross apart from your behavior at all. What's the most logical objection to that? What you are describing, Matt, sounds like you're saying God does not care about sin. It sounds to me like you are saying, I can believe in Jesus, and then I can sin whatever sin I want to sin. I can sin by the sin of my sinny sin sin, and God doesn't care because I've been granted immunity by the high judge of heaven. Paul heard those objections too. Those are great objections. In fact, if you've never offered that objection, I don't think you've ever heard the gospel because it's completely logical. It sounds too easy. I always say this, easy for whom? So Paul heard these objections all the time. This can't be true. It can't be that easy. You are saying, you are encouraging people to sin. So Paul would say things like this as we move through uh, the book of Romans. Therefore, do not let sin take over in your mortal body so that you base, obey sin's desires. Do not present your body parts to sin so that sin can use your body parts as instruments to be used for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. Present your body parts to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. Or he would say things like this. So what am I saying here? Shall we just keep sinning because we're not under the law anymore, but under grace? May it never be. Or absolutely not. That's not what I'm teaching. But Paul is really clear. We are no longer under the law. So what is the relationship between the law and our righteousness. I mean, do we just, do we just tear, tear the law out of our Bibles? No, we've been going through Exodus. Like I said this morning, we've been going through Exodus in Sunday school since it was a current event topic. Okay, that's how long we've been in Exodus. What's the relationship? Paul's gonna give something of an answer to that today. How we... Obey the law without focusing on the law. And how, uh, well, we'll get there. Are we free to disobey God without any fear of consequences? No, not at all. But is God still grading our behavior to see if we are good enough to get into heaven when we die? So what's a Christian supposed to do with the law? He's going to speak to that today. Um, In this little passage, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Let's read it together. On the screen will be um, the New American Standard Version. I'd love it if you'd bring your own Bible and have that open while we study. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Read this way. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, and there is, 
It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The main idea of this passage is all about how love fulfills the law for us. But this passage starts with what I call a, a focus sucker. Here's what I mean by a focus sucker. Paul starts with these words, Owe no one anything. And that all our focus can be sucked into those words because I start thinking, wait a minute, I, what does that mean? Because I owe plenty of people lots of things. Right? I have a mortgage. Like we have, we have farmers and ranchers here. Right? And it's not like they're the only ones in debt, but they have a lot more experience at it than the rest of us do. Right? Right? And, and so I think I have to explain what this doesn't say so that you're not still thinking about it. Paul just say, I can't owe anything to anyone or I'm, or I'm living in, in, in sin. The short answer is no. Paul's not saying that. Here's, here's why I can be sure of that. First, this is not a passage that's teaching financial policy. Paul didn't just start the old crown financial uh, study, if any of you have ever gone through that, like we have, and I love it. But that's not what he's talking about here. So we shouldn't take these four words in English um, out of the text and say, see, it says right here, nobody can owe anything, uh, owe anyone anything. That's not what he's talking about. Second, we know that the Bible doesn't completely um, disallow, forbid borrowing, debt. Uh, Jesus said, give to the one who asks you. Do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. There's debt. Um, Jesus told parables about uh, guys who were supposed to invest their master's money, right? Any investment, there's debt somewhere in that process. Even if I'm not the one incurring the debt, someone is. So I just want to put your mind at ease a little bit here. I don't want you to be thinking about your mortgage um, uh, or your line of credit here. Now, I do want to say this while we're talking about this. The Bible's really clear. We better be, we better be careful uh, what we go into debt for and who we go into debt to. Um, the, the borrower is slave to the lender, according to Proverbs. Um, so I just don't want you to hear me wrong, but I don't want to teach a financial class here. Right? That's not what Paul's doing, so that's not, not what I want to do. So what is Paul doing? Owe no one anything, and then the next thing he says is accept to love one another. I think, I think this is the NIV. I just ripped this picture off the internet, but I think this is the NIV that really, I think, captures Paul's meaning of verse 8 pretty well. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. It can sound like Paul's saying, don't owe anybody anything except love. That doesn't matter. You don't have to love people. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is just saying this. He just got done telling us we have to pay what we owe. He was talking about taxes. Sorry, Christians, you got to pay your taxes. You got to pay your taxes, whatever fees, whatever duties. If there's a person of government authority, you owe them honor. But most of that stuff is for a limited time only. Be faithful to pay back your debts. But most debts work like 
when Rachel and I, when we pay off our mortgage, you better believe we're not paying them anything else after we pay it off, right? We're done. Paul says, so don't owe anybody, be faithful, be current, don't owe anybody anything except to love one another because the debt of love doesn't work like your mortgage. You never get to the point where you can stand up and say, I have loved enough, paid in full. That's what this little section of the book of Romans is about. We're now in the Christian living section, started in Romans 12, 1. Where we've gone back to, do you remember our problem as human beings? Our problem is we have suppressed the truth, bought the lie and made the exchange, right? As Christians, we can go, we're supposed to be going back to that truth that the best way I can live my life is to live it for the God who created me. For the Christ and the Savior that put me back in a right relationship with God. That's what this whole section from now till halfway through chapter 15, everything from 12.1 through 15.13 is about what does it look like if I'm a living sacrifice? And Paul's been telling us love is a huge part being a, a living, if you live your life as a sacrifice for God, if I'm living my life, giving my life back to the Lord Jesus, you're a better steward of my life than I am. I'm going to let you call the shots. I no longer live my life. My thinking is different. I no longer live my life like, well, what's really wrong with that? Or, or you can't tell me there's anything wrong there. I just live my life. What do you think is best? What do you think is perfect? What is well-pleasing to you, if that's how I live my life, I will be a man of love. That's what this is about. And now Paul is going to tell us, if we do that part well, if we do love well, we get the law for free. We don't have to worry about the law, almost. Because love fulfills the law. That's the rest of this passage. That's the whole passage, actually. It's the main idea, obviously. Look, oh, no one anything except for love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And he says it again at the end. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. How? Why? What's that mean? Well, one thing is when Jesus went to the cross, he completely fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. The, the, the cross is where God could be just in punishing sin and justifier of sinful people at the same time. Jesus so completely fulfilled the law on our behalf that again, my righteousness before God is not based on my own behavior anymore. My righteousness before God is based on his behavior. So what's that mean? The law has been so fulfilled that I don't have to care about my sin anymore? May it never be. So what do we do with the law and with the rules as Christians? Paul says, here's what you do. Will you love one another? And you almost won't have to worry about whether or not you're obeying the law. When I say love one another, here's how we have defined love. 
Love is the desire to see and the work put towards seeing God's best done in someone else's life. So if I love you, I want to see what God says is best happening in your life. And I'm willing to work towards seeing God's best done in your life. That's love. Just want to make sure we're on the same page here because this is about loving one another and that's what real love, that's what real love is. And if I, again, have given my body to God as that living sacrifice, I'll be a man of love. You'll be a person of love. And if we do that well, again, we get the law for free. Let's go through this and see how Paul tells us this. The one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For, Paul says, see, I'll show you. Check this out. Take the commandments, for example. Here's some. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And if there's any other commandments, and, and they are, they're all summed up right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, um, you know, maybe you Jewish, Jewish Christians up there in Rome, that you really have a hard time with this idea that we're not under the law. Paul says, look, you're going to be doing the law if you do love. I'll prove it to you. Let's take this command. Do not commit adultery. Is there any way that I can be a man of love? Remember what love is. Love is wanting to see God's best done in someone else's life. Is there any way I can be loving people in my situation and commit adultery at the same time? No. There's no way. Can I, can I be murdering a guy while I love him at the same time? No. Can I steal while I'm wanting to see God's best done in that person's life? No. Here's a trickier one. A coveting. You know what coveting is? That's an old school word. Coveting is when I have this, this sort of driving desire to have what someone else has that I don't have. Can I love you if I covet stuff you have that I don't have? Probably not, but you know who I really can't love well if I'm stuck in covetousness? God. You know what coveting is? You know why it's a problem? Because I am saying to God, you're doing a bad job at providing what I need to be content. Because I can't be content unless I have what that guy has. Here's the way you think about coveting. Here's why it is an affront to God. Always think of coveting this way. It's my go-to example. Let's say, um, let's say you invite us over for lunch today. Home-cooked meal. And Rachel and I show up um, we go over there, we sit down, and you have, you've spent some time preparing this meal, and you set it in front of us, and I take one look at what you have prepared, and I go, oh, I, I sure wish we were eating what Rebecca cooked today instead of this. What would you do? Like, inside, you'd be like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> right? That'd be, listen, Every time I fall into covetousness, I'm looking at the plate God has set before me and saying exactly that. Oh, I sure wish I had what you gave John. That's what we do. We're not loving 
God, and I can't love you either. Because I'm supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul already told, told us that. So, if we love well, we get the commands for free. Do you see that? This is, this is important to understand for a couple of reasons. Um, the main reason is this. Paul, is, he's been hammering away at this. Um, love one another. We've been on it for several weeks. Love one another with real love. Here's why that is to be our focus and not the law, because the opposite of this is not true. If I, if I am loving my wife well, adultery is not a possibility, right? If I love well, I get the law for free. Another example. In Nebraska and in America, we have rules about child welfare, right? There's minimum standards of, of well-being to keep kids from being neglected and abused, right? I don't even know what they are because if I love my kids well, I don't have to worry about those things, right? If I love my kids well, I will not be abusing or neglecting them. All right, now let's take a look at those things from the other direction. If I say to Rachel, well, I'm not committing adultery, do you have any idea whether or not I'm loving her well? In fact, if I'm saying that, if I'm throwing that command in her face, what would be your guess as to whether or not I'm loving her well? You can't say anything to me. I haven't committed adultery. Doesn't sound great. Or how about this? If the only thing I can tell, uh, tell you about the way I love my kids is that they have enough to eat and I don't beat them, am I, am I a loving dad? Probably not. See, here's why this is so important. Here's why Paul says, Christian, focus on love. Focus on love. Understand your righteousness is there by, by Christ, but the truth is still the truth. The best way you can live your life is still by glorifying your creator and the one who saved you and rescued you, right? But love, focus on love. Because when we decide that our morality and our righteousness is built on obeying the behavioral commands in Scripture, most of the time we're not people of love. We look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Right? Boy, they made sure they, they you know, they were, they were uh, tithing the spices from their kitchens. Jesus said, you guys are sons of the devil. Not a compliment, that line. Right? Right? When we build our righteousness and our morality off of keeping the behavioral commands instead of love, it makes us sort of self-righteous. It makes us compare the sins we don't sin to those other people. Oh, they sin those sins. And, and somewhere deep inside, we're kind of happy they sin those sins. You know why? Here's a line you're going to hear a lot while you come to church here. Because it always feels better to feel. It always feels better to feel better than someone else. And when I build my morality and my righteousness off of keeping the rules, what starts to happen is I'm kind of glad that person has those sins that I don't have because it helps me feel better. You know what love requires? To 
me go after God's best in that person's life. For me to go put my arm around that person. Oh, somebody might see me hanging out with that person. Yep. They might. They might say something. Yep. They might. But your righteousness isn't built on whether other people think you hang out with, you know, people with long hair and tattoos and whatever else. Your righteousness is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And now we are people of love. If we're people of love, we won't go out sinning with the people who sin, but we'll be after God's best in their life. And I'll stop being like sort of smugly satisfied and feeling better that at least I'm not like those people. Paul says, just be about love. Just be about love. And the obedience to the law and the rules will, will take care of itself. Now, is there a role for the law? Is there a role for those rules? Absolutely. Why do you think God saved it for us and put it right in our laps? You know what it's for? You know what the rules are for and the laws? If we would love perfectly, would you agree with this? If we would love perfectly, we would not even need the rules. Would you agree with that? Here's the problem. We don't love perfectly and we get all kinds of jacked up about what real love is. Remember, real love is seeing God's best done in someone else's life, right? How are we supposed to know what God's best is? Whatever feels right? That's what we do. What the world calls love right now is leave me alone and let me do whatever I want to do while I'm living for myself, right? That's not love. So we need the rules to let us, to let us know what God's best is sometimes, because all of us, your pastor included, can get self-deceived about what, what is best, about what is right. And so God showed us and gave us this. But our focus is on love. If you love well, you won't do anything wrong to somebody else. Love fulfills the law. Be people of love. Get it? Let's pray and then we will uh, other musicians come up and we'll sing a closing hymn before we transition to communion. Father God, this is one of, um, one of those passages that reminds us uh, just because we're, we're not doing anything wrong doesn't mean we're doing everything right. Because you don't want us to just not sin certain sins. You want us to be people of love. And that's, the debt, that's a debt of ours that's never paid up. We've never been loving enough. We've never done this perfectly. We never will. It'll be frustrating. It'll be thankless. It'll be difficult. But God, this year, I want you to have more of my life than you had last year. And you taught us in the book of Romans that being people of love is what it will look like when we give you our heart and our life our bodies. So God, help us to love. Help us to love in a way that 
you get glorified and people see, wow, that's what real love looks like and feels like and people come to know you as Savior and people are getting baptized and people are growing and being discipled and all of that to make you look awesome. You loved us first. We love you back. Now lead us to love one another and love that world out there that needs to be loved by the God of the universe through the only Savior he offered, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior in his name. Amen. Stand and sing with us for a minute if you would. Kind of a strange communion text. Go ahead, Sid. This is from the law. We talked about the law today, so we're going to do some law for communion. This is after God has revealed the law to Moses, and, and he uh, has Moses and some of the representatives of Israel come up, and they, they share a meal together um, over the, the old covenant, over the law. Here's the rules. And as a part of that meal and that ceremony, we read this from Exodus chapter 24. Moses came and told the people all the commandments of the Lord and all the ordinances. And then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And Moses rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12, 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. And then he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. We're on fellowship now based on this covenant where we just promised to do everything you told us to do. And Moses took half the blood of those bulls and he set it in basins and bowls and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the, author, on the altar. And he then took the covenant scroll and he read it aloud to the people. And they responded again, we will do, we will obey everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all this, these words. And if you know the story, that, that people, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And what happened with their clothes? Their clothes what? Their clothes never wore out. Did they have Tide Pods? No? For 40 years, what did they see? Every day when they looked at their clothes, they saw the blood of those bulls. And you know what it reminded them? I promised I promised to do everything the Lord commanded me how many ancient Israelites ever looked down at that blood said I promised and look at me that's the fellowship meal of the law you want to build your righteousness on your ability to keep the commandments has to be that I promise to do everything the Lord commanded. 
we get to celebrate a different fellowship meal. Would you take the, uh, the top off and grab that little wafer? This bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ who was killed on a cross as the sacrifice that established a new covenant. And this covenant is not based on your ability to keep the rules. It's based on his ability to keep the rules and his willingness to die in your place under the punishment you deserve for not keeping the rules. Do this in remembrance of him. Now, I'm so thankful I don't have to walk around with blood-stained clothes that remind me of my sin and my failure, how I promised. That's not the blood or the symbol of the blood we drink this morning. You know what this grape juice in these little cups symbolized? This is, gee, this is why we do this once a month, usually here at this church. We uh, usually pass these. We hold the symbol of Jesus' blood. And instead of me saying, oh, I failed again and I promised, it's Jesus reminding us once a month, hey, I promised. You are forgiven. You are righteous before the judge of the universe. You know why? Because I promised. And you can't blow this. I, the best way you can live your life is to offer it up to me. That's best. And here's the, here's the rules and the law. That's what love looks like. Go do it. But listen, your righteousness before my Father is not based on your ability to do that. It's based on my ability to do that. And if you've placed your faith in me, you are righteous before the God of the universe. I promised. And he made that promise in his blood. So we do this in remembrance Amen. Just as a way to dismiss, why don't we stand up and just sing that chorus a couple times. Hallelujah. What a Savior.